Uh, good evening. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, why don't you open up to the book of Exodus. We'll continue our journey beginning in Exodus chapter 19. So we're coming up, we've, we've come to the end of the seven stops that God had taken the children of Israel through to prepare them for what they needed in order to cross into the promised land in Kadesh Barnea. And at the end of those seven, after Rephidim, they came to Mount Sinai. The word Sinai, it means thorn. Sinai, you'll remember that mountain. The mountain should remind you of a certain bush that Moses saw that was burning yet not being consumed. And he went up there and the Lord said to him, Now, Moses, take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And he told Moses, he said, Now listen, I'm going to send you to deliver the children of Israel. And this will be a sign to you, he said. When you return here, you'll worship me on this mountain. And here he is. Two and a half million people following behind him, sitting at Mount Sinai, ready to receive whatever it is that the Lord has for them. And ultimately, we're going to see them receive the law. Well, as it begins in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The Lord lays out for him this concept. Hey, this is my claim on you. I redeemed you. Redeemed means to be twice bought. The Lord created them, and then he bought them. He paid the price. We see the picture of the Passover, right? The, the Passover that was done there in Egypt to set the children of Israel free. The Lord working out their redemption that they might be set loose. And then he says this, this neat little verse that I bore you on eagle's wings. I bore you on eagles. That word for eagle there is the griffin eagle. The griffin eagle is the eagle that's more prevalent there in the Middle East. Not like whenever I see eagle, I picture bald eagle. I don't know about you guys, but whenever I think about an eagle, that's what I think about. This is a, a griffin, but but their habits are not terribly different from that of a bald eagle. One of the things that a griffin eagle does, it keeps its nest high. And it is as far out of reach as it can possibly be. And anyone who messes with the nest is going to get a mama eagle running down their back. When I was stationed in Adak, Alaska, I spent about a year in Alaska in the, in the Marine Corps. And one of the things that was on Alaska, on ADAC, it was a bird sanctuary. There literally, no lie, were more birds, more eagles than flies here. That's a lot of eagles. I am not kidding. Every day you could see hundreds and hundreds, not just a couple. I mean hundreds of eagles every day, all over the place, everywhere you looked. And every year you would hear about some marine who decided to go out to the cliffs. Now the cliffs in Adak were, were, was where all the eagles would go, where they would have their nests, and their young would be born. And every year, some brilliant guy would decide he was going to go poke around an eagle's nest. And the stitches that they would get for their trouble was amazing. The talons on those eagles are like two inches long. And when it's flying, it, it's not trying to just take an easy swipe at you. It's going to thump you good. And so they're very protective of their young, very protective of it. And isn't that similar in the picture? Think about the picture that God's painting here. Didn't the nation of, of Egypt think, oh, well, you know, they're, they're in a place where we can go get them. And so they didn't they go after them there at, at the Red Sea to try to stir up the nest? And Mama Eagle took care, protected her young. God watched over the nation of Israel. 
He also says in that verse that he bore them up on eagles' wings. I love that. I even looked for a video for it. I haven't found a video for it yet. If I ever do, I'll show it to you guys. But as the eagle will go to that high, high spot on the tree where it's top of the tree or the top of the cliff where its nest is, he starts to make the nest uncomfortable for the, for the baby eagle. It, she'll start putting in branches that poke them and it's not so comfortable anymore. And one day, Mama Eagle nudges that eaglet as close to the edge as she can get it. And then she like swoops him and off he goes. Falls out of the nest, just tumbling. Now, everything that eagle needs to fly, it already has. Only it doesn't know it. And Mama Eagle jumps out of the nest, swoops down underneath, catches the eaglet on her back, brings him back up and drops him off of the nest. Now, when that little eaglet is fallen, what do you think is going through his mind? My mom hates me. I don't know what I've done. She just threw me out the nest. How often is that the way we are when we're going through something challenging in our lives? Some, some event has taken place and we start to think, oh, God, have you forgotten me? What's going on? But what is what it was the eagle doing? Just teaching the eaglet how to fly giving them wings and the mama will do that until one time the baby eaglet as it's falling throws its wings out and that's the last time off he goes flying beautiful picture of what god does in our lives hey he says i bore you on eagle's wings i took you out of the land i've redeemed you i purchased you i'm watching over you all those pictures we see in that picture of the eagle how it watches out and i'm always reminded whenever i think about this maybe you are too of isaiah 40 31 that he who waits upon the lord shall renew his strength that's right he will mount up with wings like eagles when we look at that scripture I heard someone say one time, and I wrote it down in my Bible, I always loved it. He said, to wait on the Lord, he said, you should picture that like being a waiter and waiting on the Lord. And I have loved that ever since. He who waits on the Lord, looking, it's, a, it's an active waiting, not just running around doing things, but waiting on God. Lord, what can I do for you? Attending to the Lord, making the Lord your center focus. Think of that waiter who takes care of you, right? And whenever your glass is half empty, good waiter's coming over there making sure you're topped off again, taking care of all those things. Well, that's the, the concept behind it. He who waits upon the Lord, making the Lord that central point in his life, he will mount up with wings like eagles. He will run and not grow weary. He'll walk and not grow faint. Well, that's what we want. That's what we want. And that's what the Lord would, was doing with the nation of Israel as He took them on this journey. As He brought them through the journey here to Mount Sinai. Finally, to that resting point. And so He brings them this word. In verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be a special treasure. The word is sakula. A special treasure. But listen, this is what is known as a conditional covenant. And the way we know it's conditional is because it goes like this. If you, then I. If you, then I. Now prior to this point, what was it that brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt? It was the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember the Abrahamic covenant from the book of Genesis, Abraham gets prepared to make this, this offering unto the Lord. He divides all the, the beasts and the Lord's going to meet him there. You remember and Abraham just has this deep sleep fall over him. And the Lord passes through the midst. And Abraham doesn't do anything. And God makes his promise to Abraham. And it goes like this. I will, I will, I will. No if. There's no if you, then I. The Abrahamic covenant is what's known as an unconditional covenant. It means they can't mess it up. But here we're coming to the Mosaic covenant, or the, the, the covenant of Sinai, the covenant of the law. And it's a if you, then I. If you do this, then I will do that. And this is what he's laying out for us here. 
You will be my special treasure, this unique people. To me above all people for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words which I shall speak to the children of Israel. 1 Peter 2.9 attributes that very same language to the bride of Christ. You are my special treasure, special people, a kingdom of priests. He lays out this concept because God's looking for that people, that people that will set their heart after him. Wait on the Lord. He's the focus. He's the main thing. He is the one for which our energy is spent. And this is what he's looking for. The beauty is the covenant that we find ourselves in, folks, is what's known as the new covenant. Do you know how it goes? I will, I will, I will. No if you. It's unconditional. Just like the Abrahamic, different from the law. So we're going to see as we look at the covenant, this covenant of the law that the children of Israel are ultimately going to hang their hat on. As we look at it, we want to see this is a conditional covenant. It requires obedience. It requires their obedience. You are a special people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Verse 7. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now in the book of Deuteronomy, we read that the Lord was pleased that that was their heart. Now, we know that's not their performance, right? Because it's not ours neither. But their heart was to please the Lord, to do whatever it was that the Lord was calling them. So the Lord is going to commend them on that in Deuteronomy where this story is, is told again. As, and we'll get there in a couple weeks. We'll be in Deuteronomy. But anyhow, we're going to see that that's the, the heart of God, that that's His desire. And so the Lord said to Moses... In verse 9, Behold, I will come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. There's two things that God's going to work out at Sinai, and I, want, I don't want you to miss this po- these two points. First, he's going to establish Moses as his leader. Because as Moses tells the people, so it will happen. Secondly, he's going to establish the Ten Commandments and go on to 613 commandments as we continue through. He's going to give us the law of God or God's law, and he's going to give us the law of Moses or Moses' law. And we'll see those things divided out. But it's important that you understand God's law was given to the people vocally. They didn't have to read the Ten Commandments. They did not hear the Ten Commandments from the lips of Moses. They heard the Ten Commandments from the lips of God. God spoke it from Mount Sinai in the hearing of all the people. Can you imagine the sight? Two million people gathered around a mountain, roughly 7,500 foot elevation. So what's that? 500 feet or 600 feet short of Galena Summit? Something like that? 1,400 feet short. So then, figure that out in your mind. (laughs) So then, 1,400 feet short of that, but they're all gathered around the bottom of this mountain. The mountain is quaking, shaking, covered with smoke and fire, lightning, and the voice of God coming off of the mountain, reciting to them the Ten Commandments. We're going to read it in just a moment. Wouldn't that be an incredible thing? Wouldn't that be... An extremely fearful thing to be there in the presence of Almighty God as he recites the requirement of the law. I wonder how far they get before they realize we're in a lot of trouble. Like the first one? The second one, maybe? So the Lord is accomplishing all these things. He's doing all these things. And in this giving of the law... I'm reminded when I consider that, that I have never one time in my entire life had to teach my kids to do something wrong. Isn't that amazing? 
Never had to teach my son how to lie. He come born that way. Never taught him how to rebel. Never taught him any of those things at all. In fact, while I was studying, I came across this report that was done by the Minnesota Crime Commission. I don't know if you guys have ever heard it before, but I'm going to read you an insert. Now, this is not a Christian organization. It's a crime commission, but this is what they write. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty, has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer. Well, that's not far from a truth. I mean, the reality, when I, when I, he's gone, right? When I was telling the story on Sunday about Cole, Cole was the honoriest, meanest, rottenest baby on the face of God's green earth. Horrid. He was horrid. Kathy and I, we were all excited while she was pregnant. We're going to have a baby. And we were thinking, a baby, when the baby's born, it's going to cry. And we had a three-year-old at the time, so we were thinking, won't it be nice to, to hear that little baby crying? And we were walking through the nursery. We were hearing babies crying and thinking, oh, I can't wait. And then, you know, we went through that whole demonic story I told you about, right? The eyes popping. Cole comes out. He comes out screaming. Ah, just about like that. Never once did he have that, that cute little cry. And he was mean from the first moment. I mean. He didn't, he didn't talk about... Hopefully that's all changed. But anyhow, he would just scream. You put him in his car seat and you took the shoulder strap and you put it, the left one over first instead of the right one. He would scream. Now, in the beginning, I thought... Whatever, I'll, I don't care, scream. Whoa, he wouldn't stop. Seriously, hour after hour after hour. He's already back in the house. The only way to get him to stop was to take him back out to the car, put him back in the car seat, and do it right. And then he'd stop. One night at about 8.30, we're putting Cole to bed, and he was missing Batman. Little Batman, his silly little Batman doll. Well, he, there was no going to bed. So it became a quest. Find Batman. At all costs, find Batman. We called in the search party. Turn on the lights outside. I, 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 I had mowed the lawn. I was scared to death. I had mowed Batman and he was all mauled up. But finally we found Batman and put him in. But all of that, when, we, when I look at my children, every one of them, I had to teach them good. Didn't have to teach them bad. They came that way. And it's such a good picture of sin nature. All man is born in sin. Everyone. From moment one, from the moment we cracked the womb, right then, born in sin. Able already to do wrong. Need to be taught to do good. And so God lays out for us here and. In Exodus 19, the footwork is done for the giving of the Ten Commandments. God's law. Now, I used to go around all the time and say, oh, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Well, there's just one small problem with that, right? John would write in 1 John that in this is love. If you love the Lord, you will keep His commandments. The commandments of God. Now, as we study, like I said, you're going to see the Bible talks about it in two different places. John chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. John chapter 7 talks about the law of Moses. Uh, Romans chapter 7 talks about the law of God. The way I see it and the way I understand it as I study, the law of God is the Ten Commandments. 
the ones he spoke, the ones he laid out. And we're going to go through a whole bunch of other ones as we study through, through the book of Exodus that are going to lean on that. But what is it that Jesus said? All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you won't break a one. You won't break a one. So simple and so amazingly difficult all at the same time. Well, the scripture goes on. So it says, the Lord said to Moses in verse 10, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their clothes. They would go into what is known as a mikvahot. A mikvah, ceremonial washing. A, a baptism, if you will. It was an immersion. There would be a pool cut out into the rock. They would have stairs that went down into it. They would go in. They would wash their hands, their feet. They would immerse. They'd wash their clothes and come out. They would go through a ceremonial cleansing anytime they were preparing themselves to serve the Lord. And so you have two and a half million people in two days all having a mikvahot, a ritual bath, a cleaning, a cleansing. And so he lays out for them that you're supposed to do this, that they're going to wash their clothes and let them be ready for the, which day? Third day. God could have picked any number, couldn't he? He picked the third day. Isn't that interesting? The third day, all the people would be clean, standing before God. Covered in the righteous work of the Savior, the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, who rose on the third day. Right? As we go through the scripture, remember, Hebrew mindset and prophecy is pattern. Three days. The third day, the people were clean before the Lord. The third day, Jesus rose again, being declared as the only righteousness that would be received by God. Man cannot stand in his own righteousness. He must stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, their clothes were to be made clean. And the whole point is, the whole point is God saying, this is really special. Something really special is about to happen. Something really incredible is going to take place. He said, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now you remember when Moses saw the burning bush, the Lord said, take off your shoes, you're where? On holy ground. It's, a, it's an emphasis on that same kind of thing, only instead of a burning bush, what do we got? A 7,500 foot tall burning mountain. Really, that's what, we're, that's what we're looking at. So the same kind of a deal. The Lord's going through. Don't touch the mountain. Don't, the people cannot touch the mountain. Stay off the mountain. Why? Because no one can come to the Lord apart from the righteous work of Jesus Christ. Nobody. And that's the pattern that the Lord is laying out all the way through the scriptures. You can't come. One way. One way, not multiple ways. They cannot come. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. This is again a man or beast. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Oh, by the way, the trumpet, who blew it? Oh, it's going to be the Lord. The Lord sounded a trumpet, gathering his people together to receive the law. The Lord's going to sound that trumpet again. He's going to gather his people to be with him. The Lord's going to sound the trumpet after that seven more times. We have over and over again the sounding of the trumpet for the gathering of the people. When the trumpet sounds, they'll come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. What does that mean? He set the people apart. Okay, he's setting them apart. They're washing their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that there's no reason for you not to uh, participate in a sexual relation with your wife except, except that you be given to prayer or this special moment. Just like what we're looking at here. To be focused wholly, completely on the Lord. So that's what's going on here. He just says, hey, don't go near your wives. Let's stay focused 
on the Lord. Stay focused on what God has. Keep God in that rightful place. And you can read about it in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. It says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain. I love that word for the thick cloud on the mountain. I love that word for the cloud that follows them. I love the word Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God. The Kabod in some places. Same meaning the, the glory of the Lord. Shekinah. That place, that thick cloud coming down on the mountain. The mountain's going to be covered. Completely covered. Thunder, lightning, fire, smoke, heavy cloud. The presence of Almighty God. No doubt in anyone's mind what's going on or what's taking place at that moment. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. So that all the people who were in the camp, what they do? Tremble. Tremble. Folks, nobody stands before a holy and righteous God without trembling. What's the first thing we hear when man stands before an angel? Do not be afraid. In the scriptures, we're told how many times? 366 times not to be afraid. One for every day plus leap year. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But here, you can't help but tremble in the presence of a holy, righteous God. Standing before a holy, righteous God, the event is not necessarily that glorious event that we look for in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This event is horrifying. It's terrifying. It's trembling. Why? Because God, because He loves us, is about to do something for us that we each as parents have done for our kids. Help them learn right from wrong. Lay out for them the law. What is good and what is bad? A father is about to teach his children. And so it says, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Dreadful, terrifying. But while we're thinking about that, keep your finger there and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning in verse 18, look what it says. For you have not come to the mountain that may be that may be touched, that burn with fire, and to blackness and darkness and the tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What did Abel's blood say? He cried out for justice. The Lord said, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Remember when he met with Cain? But what is it that Jesus' blood cries out? Mercy. Forgiveness. Grace. A better thing complete thing when i see this thing taking place here at mount sinai the terror the crying the the fear all that stuff i'm reminded of the justice that's required for god is laying out to his people the righteous requirement of a relationship with him if you then i 
This is the righteous requirement, period. In Romans, he tells us there is only one righteousness that will be accepted, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who, what, was the only person ever to fulfill the law. He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but what? To fulfill it. To fulfill it. That's what Jesus Christ had accomplished. And so when we consider this mountain, the fire, the thunder, the lightning, the voice of God speaking to the people, this dreadful moment, we need to remember that we don't live there anymore. For all that dread, all that fear, all that worry, all that stuff that comes upon us when we consider that was what was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. As He paid the price thrown on the cross and declared to be unrighteous, but God raised him from the dead and declared him what? Righteous. Perfect. You killed the only one who ever kept the law. And that paid the price for all of us who break it. Sinai, Mount Sinai, speaks of fear and terror, but Zion speaks of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai speaks of a dry desert, but Zion is a city of the living God. Sinai, with its fear and its power, is earthy, but Mount Zion, we come to, it's heavenly and spiritual. At Sinai, only Moses could come to meet God. At Zion, there is no number to the hosts that may come. At Sinai, Moses is a mediator. At Zion, Jesus is the mediator. Sinai put forth an old covenant ratified by the blood of animals. But Zion has a new covenant ratified by the blood of God's own precious Son. Mount Zion speaks of a better. For Sinai is about the law. And Zion is about grace. The scripture goes on and says, And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Folks, they heard God talk to Moses. Not like Moses looking up in the sky saying, What was that? Oh yeah, okay, let me tell him. It wasn't like that. They heard the voice of God. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, in verse 20, on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves. We've got a problem, don't we? Priesthood hasn't been established yet. Where did they get priests? It's simple. That was the blessing of the firstborn. The firstborn was a priest of the family. Remember Jacob and Esau? Esau despised his birthright, cared not for spiritual things, only about earthly things. Jacob cared. He wasn't good, neither was Esau. But he desired the spiritual. He desired, that's why the Lord said, Jacob, Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated. Jacob, it's a Hebrew idiom for chosen. Jacob, I have chosen, Esau, I haven't. Why? Because in God's foreknowledge, he knew what? Esau would reject him. Esau cared not at all about the spirit. He was to be the priest of the family, but he rejected it. So here when he says, gather up the priest, he's talking about the firstborn. The firstborn within the family that would fulfill that role as priest. Later on, we're going to see that role given after the golden calf incident to the tribe of Levi. But until then, every family, there was a priest that was a part of every family. That was the role of the firstborn. Tell the priests who come near the Lord to consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord... The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Moses said, Look, I already told the people they won't come. Really, Mo, where have you been all this time? 
How's that work with your kids? Hey guys, I'm going away for a while. Clean the kitchen. What's the odds that the kitchen's clean when I get home? Pretty small. You're right. Here's what I'm thinking. Before I left, we'll see. I'll tell you all Sunday. Before I left today, I told Cole to do the dishes. Now, I love my son dearly, and I'll still love him when I get there and the dishes are still in the sink. But I know enough to know that if I haven't like said it three times, stamped it on something, made him sign a paper, you know, that it's not going to get done. That it doesn't happen. And here Moses is not any different with the children of Israel, is it? When he gave them manna, what did he tell them to do? On the seventh day, don't go out and gather it. How many people went out to gather it on the seventh day? We don't know, but people did, didn't they? Yep. They were told on the, on the, not to try to save the manna. Just to gather it up what they needed, their daily bread, and then not to worry about it, there'd be more the next day. How many tried to gather it more and hoard it? We don't know, but they did it, didn't they? They were told not to, weren't they? But they did it anyhow. So God's saying, Moses, go back down there and tell them again. Go back down there and make sure that they understand. They're not supposed to come up. They're not supposed to come up on the mountain. They're not supposed to come to this place. And so Moses, then the Lord said to him, verse 24, Away! Get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests or the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Verse, or chapter 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, Here they come, spoken to the whole gathering of the children of Israel. The first commandment coming up. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He declares the right by which he can lay out for them this law. What's his right? As redeemer. I redeemed you. I bought you. I set you free. Redemption, remember, twice owned. Created and bought. That's what redemption speaks of. And here we have it, that being used. I redeemed you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, the covenantal name of God, the Yahweh. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now as we look, the first four commandments are all going to deal with our relationship with God. The rest are going to deal with our relationship with one another. The concept that the Lord is laying out for us is, in order for us to have right relationship with people, what must we have? A right relationship with Him. We have a right relationship with Him, we'll have a right relationship with people. If we don't, we're out of whack. We're going to be sideways. So He's going to lay out for us that first, that, that number one commandment. He tells us, you shall have no other gods before me. An absolute statement that God himself alone is worthy of worship. Of being our almighty, if you will. When we look at that, we have to ask ourselves, what is your life's passion? We want to find out what we worship what sets as God for us. Whether or not there are any other gods that we have placed above the Lord, we need to know what our life's passion is. A real good way of finding out what it is, ask your kids. I did that once. Didn't really like what I got. I thought, well, surely I got a pretty good chance of the kids saying, you know, the Lord, God, didn't work out. You know what my life's main passion was to my kids? Football. Coached football for 10 years. They lived, breathed, did football the whole time they were able to do football. That wasn't the message that I wanted them to receive. The whole time I did football, that wasn't my focus. But that's the message that was received. You want to know what your life's master passion is, don't ask yourself. Ask the ones that are watching you, the ones that are with you, the, the ones that 
that look at all the stuff that you do. You shall have no other gods before me. Me first. That God holds that rightful place in our life. That he is our master passion. And when we think about it like that, kind of changes it. Sometimes we look at the first four commands and we think these are easy. Are they really? Where does sin begin? Is it in the action? The Bible tells us sin begins in the heart. Where was the very first sin ever committed? In the heart. Isaiah 14. Lucifer said in his heart, I will exalt myself above the Most High. It began in the heart. The book of Jeremiah lays out for us uh, lays out for us a scripture speaking about our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Have we heard that verse before? You guys ever heard someone read that? They ever read the other part? Because the next part is the part that gives us hope. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Who can know the heart? God can know the heart. How many times does the Bible tell us, do not be deceived? Is it possible for you and I to lie to our heart so much that we start to believe it? Thou shalt have no other God before me. Put God in his rightful place. Allow God to be that rightful place in our lives. Verse 4, the second. And you shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself, a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven or is on earth, beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God. You shall make no graven image. No image. No picture of God. No, no thing that we'll go to and worship. Folks, if you come with me to Israel, and we go around and we look at the various sites... No lie, you will see people praying to a stone that's supposed to have the footprint of Jesus in it. You'll see them kissing it. You'll see them going through all these things. Not worshiping the Creator, but the thing. Because man has this desire to worship something he can touch and feel and, and see. So the Lord says, no graven image. None. No graven image. Why is that? Because whatever image we make will fall short. Won't it? Whatever image we make, wherever our focus. The other thing that this talks about, sometimes we can take God and put him in, a, in an image that suits us, don't we? We can start saying, well, this is how God is, and this is what God thinks, and this and that, because if I pack God into this box, and he's the way I say he is, then, hey, everything's going to be good, and it's all going to work out great. This is super. Hey, this is how God fits in my box. And I have made for myself a graven image. I have made God in my image. But the Lord says you should have no graven image. Don't worship any graven image. Nothing that's going to take our eyes away from the Lord. For the Lord says, I am a jealous God. God wants to be our one and only forever. He says, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Everybody likes to focus on this part of the verse. The next part of the verse is a part I really like to wrap my teeth around. But while we're looking at this, here's the point of this verse. He visits them. He visits them. The third and fourth generation, the father wrapped up, caught up in sin. He says, I will visit the iniquity on the sons and the, for the third and fourth generation. They will have a visitation. Doesn't the Lord come? 
Doesn't God constantly reach out, moving, trying to gain place? Everybody wants to look at this as some kind of generational curse. And whatever your father did, that's what's going to happen to you. The Bible says, no more shall the fable be told that the father ate sour grapes and his son's teeth fell out. That's not what it's about. What's it about? It's all about God having a personal relationship with each generation. And the Lord reaching out in those generations to those who hate Him even. But then He goes on, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Don't lose sight of that, folks. Because often we comfort ourselves when we read the Ten Commandments by saying, I'm not under the law. But the Lord tells us, you're not under the law, you're under love. Love always does more than the law requires. You know that, right? Nobody had to tell me when my kids were babies that the law said I had to feed them and take care of them. They didn't have to tell me that. Why? Because love would do more than the law would require. That little devil baby... The little evil thing wrapped up in my arms. What do we do to it? We get all angry on them? No. What is it? We love them. We hold them. We kiss them. Can't get enough. We just want to get them as close as we can get. Fighting over who gets to hold them next. Unless they've got a dirty diaper or something. Then, then we're not fighting over it anymore. But as we're doing that, think about that. Isn't that what God does to us? Isn't it God that holds us, that gathers us in close? To help us learn what it's all about. To train us to do right. Isn't that how we taught our children? Was there a whooping? Sure there was a whooping. It was a whooping given in love though. That's what it was all about. Training us up. Training them up. That's what's being done. Well the scripture goes on. Now we have the next. The third. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. When we talk about names in the Bible, we need to realize every name spoke of the character to whom that name belonged. The name of God speaks to his character. Is it not hilarious that nobody on the planet ever swears by Buddha? Confucius. Nobody ever swears by any other name. No other name. The Lord said that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. And what is the, the first word out of somebody's mouth? They stub their toe. They hit their thumb. They do something. First word out of their mouth. Why isn't it ever Buddha? Why isn't ever Muhammad? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. That's why. Because the name is attached to the character of the being. There's no power in Buddha, Muhammad, or any of the other names of any of the other gods. But there is power in the name of Jesus. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Folks, it's not just talking about cursing. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about any kind of misrepresentation. It means literally, take the name of the Lord lightly on your lips. Taking the name of the Lord lightly on your lips. Don't let it be. Speaking of frivolity, hypocrisy, not just profanity. goes on then in verse 8 the 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 the, or i'm sorry the third of the last the commandment remember the sabbath day to keep it holy remember the sabbath day six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god in it you shall do no work nor your son nor your daughter nor uh, your male servant or female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. What's he call for us to do? He calls for us to get a day and seven of rest. One day and seven. He at the same time calls for us to work six days. And take the seventh day. Now, we being people, what do we all want to fight over? Which one? The seventh day. Bible never tells us which one the seventh day. Bible doesn't tell us which one to count from. I'm pretty sure we can figure it all out. The first day of the week was Sunday. So the seventh day of the week would have been Saturday. Saturday would have been Sabbath. And the Sabbath was for man to rest. Take a day off. They didn't do honeydew lists. They rested. Honeydew lists don't count as rest. Just in case you're wondering, on uh, your husband's day off, if you fill his day with work, that didn't count as a day off. One day in seven. Look, at the Lord lays out for us this. God worked six days and rested on the seventh. If we say we don't need to take a day of rest, then we're elevating ourselves above the Lord, aren't we? Now, I'm not trying to say we are under the rule of the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel, specifically as a sign. But I will say, we're supposed to take a day of rest, one in seven. We're supposed to rest. God said this was made for us. We were not made for it. We always want to find something to do, don't we? But the Lord lays it out. Hey, take a day, a day in seven. Now, folks, it was man that made that all complicated. Man sat down and said, what does it mean to not do any work? Isn't that just like us? Well, let's define what work is. They made figuring out what was or wasn't work so much work that the Sabbath day was more work than the rest of the days all put together. Because in order to do anything, you had to know whether or not what you were doing was work. And if it was work, what you could do to make sure it didn't count as work so that you'd be able to still do the work. And so when Jesus came and he healed a man on the Sabbath day, what happened? Everybody's having a cow. That's God. How do you accuse God of breaking the Sabbath? He's the one who invented it. He's the one who told us about it. The point, folks, is that you take a day in seven. You have to take. You need to take. It's something that God knows. He's the one who designed us, right? He knows. He knows what's needed. He knows what's necessary. Verse 12, he goes on now with the fifth. Honor your your father. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long. This commandment he gives us, I think the greatest example of this commandment is in looking at the picture of Jesus Christ. Looking at what Jesus did. Now let's go back to the beginning. We're talking about when, when Mary and Joseph, Mary has the baby, and let's go to the point when the baby's 12 years old. We all remember the story, right? That they go, they're going to the, to the temple for Passover. They're having the celebration. And when they leave, they go on for a couple of days journey out into the desert, and they discover something's missing, right? What was missing? Oh, Jesus. Now, just for a moment, put yourself in Joseph's shoes for all the dads. How do you tell God about this one? Lord, I lost the Messiah. Have no idea where he is. What, what did you feel like? What was that like? I thought you had Jesus. I don't have Jesus. I thought you had Jesus. Where's Jesus? Oh, don't tell me we lost God. They go back and they find him in the temple, right? Blowing away the priests with his knowledge of the word. And when his parents came, for the first time in the history of mankind, the child actually knew more 
than the parents. But what did Jesus do? He honored his father and mother. He obeyed. He came with them. He did what was required. He fulfilled the law, right? Perfectly and completely. If Jesus did it, how much more should we? And is there an end to that? Because, folks, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and his mother was at the foot of the cross, one of the, one of the words he spoke from the cross was to John, right? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And from that day forward, John took care of Jesus' mother. Even to the end, Jesus gave honor. We're to honor our, our mother and father so that our days will be long. He goes on, verse 13. You shall not commit murder. Where does sin begin? Remember we talked about it. Where does sin begin? In the heart. Didn't Jesus expound on murder? If you are angry at your brother, you have committed murder where? In your heart. Just because you couldn't go do it, doesn't mean that everything inside of you wasn't calling for it. That's where sin begins, right? In the heart. As we go down these Ten Commandments, you're going to see each one begins in the heart. In the heart. In the heart. In the heart. Why? Because a heart is deceitfully wicked. And who can know it? What did God say? I, the Lord. I know the heart. And I test the mind. God knows. And so as He gives us His law, His law is perfect, His law is right, His law awakens within us sin. Because we recognize that as soon as you tell me not to, that's exactly what I want to do. And what does that declare to me? That the law is bad? No, what's it declare? There's something inside of me I didn't necessarily know was there. You put up a sign that says no fishing and see how many people fish. Put up a speed limit sign. Except in Filer, you're, you might not speed in Filer. But hey, you put up a speed limit sign, what happens? Speed. You tell me no, and I'm going to want to do yes. That when I went to the, to the... All right, I'll tell you. When I went to Israel, went to the Dead Sea, and the guide told us, whatever you do, swimming in the Dead Sea, don't go underwater. Whatever. That's, you can't do that kind of stuff to me. So I said to him, why? He says, why does it matter? Just don't go underwater in the Dead Sea. Well, I'm going underwater as soon as we hit the Dead Sea. Now, because I care about you all, I'll tell you why. Because the water in the Dead Sea feels like jalapeno juice in every stinking soft skin part of your body to include your eyes, your ears, your nose, your lips, everywhere. Catches on fire. So I come up and I was like, oh, I understand. I get it. I get it. The funny thing is, about that time, Pastor Gerald comes walking up and the guide, our guide standing there shaking his head. He looks over at Pastor Gerald. He says, in all my years... Of bringing groups up here. I've never met someone who actually went under the water in the Dead Sea. And Pastor Gerald said, you did not. Bloop, right back underneath I went. I did too? Oh, wait, it's burning again. That's what the law does. It shows us that that's our nature, right? Remember that baby? We didn't have to teach him to do bad. But as soon as we start to tell him what's right and what's wrong... Then they're responsible. Then they're responsible. And they should be able to see their need. Which is what the law does. Is our tutor. Is our schoolmaster. You shall not commit adultery. Again, Jesus is the one who gave us a commentary on that, right? If you have looked at a woman with lust in your eyes. You lusted after a woman in your heart. You are guilty. Whether you did it or didn't. Is immaterial. You are guilty. And the Bible goes on to tell us if you're guilty of one, you are guilty of all. So you're no longer able to stand because the righteous requirement of God is a fulfillment of God's law. Which was only done in His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, you shall not steal. 
Thou shalt not steal. I don't steal, man. I don't steal a thing. Well, I'm not going to go too far into it, folks, but you read Malachi if you want to know what God's definition of stealing is. Because in the book of Malachi, he says, stealing is when we don't give God what belongs to him. If we don't give God what belongs to him, we steal. In Malachi, he's talking about the tithe. A lot of people say, tithe, tithe, that's a law. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Folks, tithe came into existence in Genesis chapter 14. We're reading about the law in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, It predates the law. It goes before. Kind of like the Shabbat, the Sabbath. Predates the law, goes all the way back to Genesis, right? At the time of creation, man needs a break in seven. So, it says, thou shalt not steal. Where does that begin? In the heart, right? All these begin and in the heart. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness. Folks, that doesn't just talk about lying. He's talking about gossip. You ever gossiped? You ever told someone a story that wasn't true about someone else? Did you ever tell someone a story about someone else that you weren't sure if it was true or not? Did you ever hear someone tell someone else a story? That you knew wasn't true and didn't say anything. In all those cases, you were a false witness. You were not true. You were false. He calls for us to bear no false witness. And finally, you shall not covet. Well, now that's the only one of the ten that you can't see. Can you? Covet is to desire stretch out for and desire something someone else has so you can covet your neighbor's wife you can covet your neighbor's car you covet covet your neighbor's motorcycle you can covet your your neighbor's whatever anything anyone else has that you want you desire you want to stretch out for the 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 language talks about reaching out for desire this desire that propels us why because all these other sins they're going to come back to covet. Why did I murder my brother? Why did I commit adultery? Why did I steal? Because I covet. I want what someone else has. I've got a tractor I'd like to have something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not a bad idea. I'm, I'll, I'll covet your tractor if you want, brother. <laughs> what is it that covetousness speaks of, guys? As far as we'll go tonight, covetousness speaks of this simple point. It speaks of being dissatisfied with God. I'm dissatisfied with what God has given me. I want that. I want this. I'm dissatisfied with the gifts of God in my life. I'm dissatisfied with Him. It takes us back to the beginning, folks. You have to have a right relationship with the Lord if you're going to have a right relationship with others. It also takes us back to the simple point in Galatians chapter 3. The law is our tutor. It's our mirror. shows us where we're dirty. But the law can't clean us any more than you would get up in the morning and shave with a mirror. The mirror shows you you need to shave. There's another tool. There's another thing that is utilized to make us clean. The scripture declares one righteousness is accepted. That righteousness is a righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's it. No other. You cannot be made righteous of your own. We, every one of us in this room, bar none, are guilty. Probably of all ten. Certainly at least one. We're all guilty. The point of the law is to show us a disease that we have and to declare to us in the scriptures that Jesus Christ is the cure. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you that we can come before you. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word. Thank you for the truth, God, as the Old Testament lays out for us, this covenant of of the law, which becomes our schoolmaster. 
that you require, Father God, that, that understanding, not that you require God, but that we know that we show our love toward you in obeying God's law. We show our love for you. That's the test. The test of our love. You made, uh, you, you made a, a way for us when we fail. Because you cover us in the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ washes me clean of every imperfection. For we are, what did the scripture say? Just man made perfect in Christ. Just man made perfect, but only in him. So Lord, help us to realize your law is good. These ten commandments that you spoke are good. That they are something that we should desire to try to, to achieve in our life. That, God, you would be the main thing in our life. That you would sit at the top of the ladder, Lord Jesus. That we'd have no graven image of any other God, Father. That we'd focus on you. That we would realize all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this. Love God and love people. So, Lord, you said in John 13... They will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. May we be a church of love reaching out in obedience to what you are calling us to do. Father, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.